Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I'm joined today by Gagan Biani to talk entrepreneurship, success, failure, and the future of education. Gagan is the founder of Udemy, uh, an online learning platform worth $3 billion that boasts tens of thousands of instructors and tens of millions of students. He is currently the CEO of Maven, an online cohort-based learning platform. Welcome to the show, sir. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. No, well, you're a you're a rock star founder, but it didn't it didn't always look that way for you, right? I read an interesting tweet storm you did a while back that talked about sort of the the founding of Udemy, which is I think a, a platform that that most of my listeners will have heard about. But as you talked about the process of getting people interested, about raising money, it wasn't always smooth sailing. Can you talk a bit about that process? And sort of what were the lessons learned from that? Yeah, so we started Udemy in 2009. And one of the things that may surprise people today is back then, venture capitalists had a very limited idea of what a potential internet company could look like. You know, it had to be started by a certain type of people. Usually, you really had to know someone in order to get an investment from them. And perhaps most surprisingly, education was not considered a category of interest for venture capitalists. And so we had a hell of a time trying to raise money for Udemy. We spent six months uh, pitching over 200 venture capitalists and or angel investors. And it wasn't until you know the last 10 that I ended up getting yeses. I learned a lot during that process because it was just rejection after rejection after rejection. The first thing is that, you know, I took it really personally at first and it only made my performance worse. So if someone said no, I would get frustrated at them um, and feel like they were, you know, it was me versus them. And it wasn't until a few months later that I started to feel more optimistic and positive that I was actually able to convince investors to be excited about working with me, which was an important shift in my mindset. The second thing is that whenever you're selling something, it's always all about the other person. And raising money is just like that. If you're raising money from investors, you have to think about what their challenges are and what they're looking for. And so while we thought we had a good idea, they really need proof that an entrepreneur is going to deliver on executing that vision. A vision and a product isn't good enough. And so it wasn't until we really focused on traction and trying to show that we had the ability to launch a product and get customers that we started to get real traction with investors. And then the third lesson was that I learned that selling is about the individual and it's also about honestly, just taking lots of at-bats. So it took, you know, 100 to 200 iterations of my pitch. Every single meeting, I was changing my pitch. 
And I was tailoring it to the person I was speaking with. And it wasn't until I found that perfect person who was interested in what I was selling and I gave the pitch that was the right pitch for that person that we were able to finally raise money. And we were lucky enough that that person was so well known that as soon as he, uh, the two, there were two people in one day that said yes. As soon as they said yes, all their friends followed suit. Wow. And so it was a pretty amazing experience and something that taught me a lot of lessons for the future as well. So there's this thing, I mean, I'm, I'm making this up as I go here, but we'll call it the American Idol phenomenon, right? When you see someone on American Idol and they're terrible, you know, in those, in those early rounds and you're like, how did no one tell them that they suck? Like, how did, like, how did no one in their life tell them that they shouldn't do this and that this was a bad idea? You know, your story is one of, of unreal success, right? I mean, you built this platform. And so you learned over those 200 at-bats uh, that, that maybe the market was being short-sighted. Maybe you were not being as, as customized or as tailored as you needed to be in your approach. And eventually you got there. But I think sometimes there, there are young entrepreneurs who will take those 200 at-bats and they'll get the rejection. And the reason they'll get the rejection, to put it bluntly, is because the idea sucks or like it's not a good idea and they should go do something else. How do you know the difference between being a visionary who's early and, and when the market is telling you that, that you're wrong? It's such a hard question. And I think there's, there's no science to it, but I'll give you a little bit of a, a framework. So the first one is you have to be honest with yourself and you have to be the type of person who can be honest with themselves. And so if you're the type of person who regularly looks back, I'm the, I'm the type of person who regularly looks back at everything I've done and can tear it apart. I can talk about what I would do differently, how I would improve, how I would change. And so I was constantly iterating and improving throughout this process. And that's a natural phenomenon for me. And if it's not natural for someone, it's very hard to be a successful entrepreneur, especially in startups, because startups are about bobbing and weaving to wherever the market is going and to wherever your customer wants. And if you can't make those changes within yourself and can't look at yourself honestly, you won't be able to make them with your startup. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that you just have to figure out whether or not from a pure logic standpoint, the rejection is related to the idea, related to you, or related to the execution of the idea. And at Udemy, we figured out that it was the execution. We had not built enough traction to get investors to believe as first-time entrepreneurs, that we were going to be able to take this company to the next level. And so when we were pitching the company before we had launched, we simply did not have enough social proof to prove to investors that they should invest in us. And that was a lesson that I took to heart, but it took me a little while because as you said, nobody told me. Right. And so if I found out later, actually instead, that the problem was nobody wanted to invest in this market or the problem was that us as co-founders weren't the right co-founders. I probably would have taken a different lesson and gone in a different way. And I've had many situations in which I did can an idea because I didn't have the right team or because it was not an idea that was attractive to investors or to customers. Yeah, I, I love that. I love that framework. Is it me? Is it the market? Is it the execution? You know, I think that's it's always going to be a bit of an art, right? It's never that clean, but I do think that's a really useful framework. 
it's really easy to get lazy with your thinking in these situations. And so actually one of the meta lessons here is to be, to be really focused on the root cause. So investors don't like you. So what? Why don't they like you? And really drill into the specifics. So anytime you have a problem, if you just let it be a problem generally and leave it at that, you're going to have trouble figuring out whether to move forward or give up. But if you actually identify the specific issue that this is causing, and then you start focusing on it and test towards that issue, then you're much more likely to either find out that actually this is a real issue or to actually handle the issue, get over it, and then be on the other side. I love it. So we're coming off of a year when virtual learning was was very much in the spotlight for students young and old. And it, it seems like the results have been mixed, right? So what advantages does virtual learning enjoy over in-person instruction? And, and where do you see it as less effective? Because it seems like a conversation we're going to be having for some time. It's a multifaceted problem. First, I'd say that one of the biggest challenges when innovation is happening is that many people try to compare the new system in its infancy to an existing system, which is well into maturity and adulthood. And so if you compare online learning today to in-person learning today, it's only going to be beneficial on the edges because it's brand new, right? We've only really had online learning for about a decade and a half. We've had in-person learning for over a thousand years. You know, the first university was, was created in the year in the, in the, in the 11th century right? That's over a thousand years ago. So where is online learning? Where are the edges? Where's online learning really better than anything else? We at Maven believe it's better in professional development for a couple of reasons. One, it's better because you get access to instructors you can't get in person. It's extremely difficult to learn from the best people in the world on a subject. If you have to be there in person to see them, there's just major geographical constraints. And both in terms of physical location, like you can only seat so many people in an audience, and also in terms of convenience, it's hard to go to and from a class. And then also because they can be in other parts of the country or other parts of the world. And so we have people like Anthony Pompliano, who lives in Miami, or Lee Jin, who lives nomadically, or Lenny Rachitsky, who lives in North Bay Area. These are people who are not accessible to 90% of their students if they weren't online. The second benefit of online learning is that it provides a feedback loop that is particularly valuable in sectors in which the internet is native. So when you're learning skills that are internet native, like learning how to be a better remote manager or learning how to do product management or web design, it makes a lot of sense to do that learning online because online is where the medium is in which you're going to practice the skill that you're being taught. So if you're if you remember back in high school, you might have learned computers by sitting in a classroom and have a teacher walk around while everyone's in front of their computer. That's completely unnecessary today. So if you're learning computer skills, better to learn it online in the native environment and learn it digitally over Zoom or over Slack. And then the third thing is it's very difficult for in-person education to catch up with the cutting edge. So online learning helps you build courses quickly and access instructors who have unique insights that are rare and hard to find in an in-person environment. 
So in-person environments have to be replicated many, many times for them to scale, whereas a digital environment can just be replicated once. One environment can grow, grow, grow. And so we at Maven offer a lot of courses, like we have a course by Preeti Kasareddy, who's an influencer on Twitter and has a course on dApps or decentralized applications. No in-person company can build a decentralized application course that quickly, but Mm -hmm. we're one of the first ones to have it, even though we're just a six-month-old startup. That's because decentralized applications is a new phenomenon with a niche audience that can only be accessed over the internet. To your first point, you know, about these teachers being having having more demand than than perhaps supply if we were going to do things in person and, and being hard to reach in some respects. It seems to me like the logical end point for all of this is that we will all be learning from the, the very best of the best. Now, this seems like it's got obvious upside for students, but but perhaps some downside for, for teachers. You know, I think about my own world of, of behavioral finance. You know, if I want to learn more about behavioral finance, do I do I want to learn from Daniel Kahneman or Richard Thaler, who have Nobel Prizes in, in the topic? Or do I want to learn it from, you know, Joe Sixpack at, at my local college? So how do you think that this impacts teachers? I mean, do you do you see this happening, that we'll have fewer, better teachers as online education begins to eat the world here? Yeah. I think there will be three tiers of instructors in the future, whereas today there's really just one. You're either a teacher or you're not, you know, if you go to school. But there will be three tiers in the future. One tier will be the subject matter experts who are at the cutting edge of their field. Daniel Kahneman might create a course once, but is not going to teach on a regular basis. Is not going to invest the time and effort it takes to become a really great instructor. And so while I do agree that you may want his concepts in the classroom, it's unlikely actually that he will directly manage and run the classroom. Mm. The second tier are great online instructors who know the information, but also want to put the effort and time into investing in building a scalable online course. That's where I think the majority of instructors will lie. And I think that there are a lot of teachers who will end up moving into that in that situation. And actually, I think a lot of them will not be teachers. A lot of them will just be subject matter experts like you. You may decide to start a behavioral economics, a behavioral finance course as a result of your existing audience. And you may pull together some of the best of that top tier and teach it in a way that's accessible to students because you might be more motivated than Daniel Kahneman is. And then there will be a third tier And this is where you can take advantage of a large, large pool of labor, which is we need to run these courses with many people. They're not just a one-person show. You can't just have someone sitting in front of a lecture, uh, in front of a video camera, lecturing to everyone. You need people who are providing feedback, who are reviewing students' work, who are monitoring students and helping them get unstuck. So there will be a large, large number of people who are in the mentor category of teaching and facilitation. We're already seeing this in some high schools and some elementary schools around the country where they're flipping the classroom and using the Khan Academy or other machine learning systems. And their teachers are just guides. Like there's a school here in Austin called the Alpha School that does this. Mm -hmm. I think in elementary and high school, that's still in early days, but in professional education and upskilling, it's here and it's only gonna get bigger and bigger over the next decade. 
you make a great point. There's been a ton of sort of uh, man versus machine conversation in, in finance. And I think where the smartest people have arrived is it's probably some mix of both. And you can see how sort of this online platform would, would facilitate with a, with a true subject, subject matter expert and then could be facilitated in person by a mentor or another teacher who helps you get unstuck. I, I like that kind of dual model there. I think that that has a lot of promise. So I, you know, I, I work in finance. I'm, I'm a numbers guy. I, I ran the numbers the other day on sending my kids to college. You know, I have three, I have three young kids. I ran the numbers and I knew it was going to be bad, but I, I don't think I was prepared for how bad it was going to be. You know, I sort of did four years of college at a state university and for my three kids accounting for inflation and, you know, what, what the dollar is likely to be worth a couple of years from now. It's about a million dollars. Like it's about a million dollars for me to send three kids to a state school um, for for four years, and that's you know I hope they go on and get graduate degrees and go to much more school than that. And I you know I I hope they go outside of the state. So it's like the base case is a million dollars, and that's just absolutely untenable for the average American family. What's what's going to be the role? of platforms like yours in democratizing education and bringing down the rising cost of education? Over time, I hope we can disrupt this system from the outside in. So Maven's goal is, uh, Maven is a platform that enables anyone to build their own online course. Specifically, we focus on cohort-based courses or courses that are kind of like classes you would take at college where there's a group of students who start and end at the same time. There's a, you know, there's three weeks in the course, or maybe it's 10 weeks or, or it's two days, but it's got a start and end time and you're taking it with a community of people. In this way, we think we can bring the best of the in-person learning experience online while simultaneously taking advantage of some of the benefits that we talked about earlier, right? So you get access to a much better talent pool for instructors because you have the whole internet of, of instructors to, to access. You have more engaging courses, especially for digital content, right? For content that's about learning, learning how to build things on the internet or anything in which you can use social skills or EQ as opposed to where you need to use physical world like a wood shop or something. And so our goal is to incentivize the best creators in the world to go and teach courses on the internet directly to their audience. And in this way, if we can build an, uh, you know, a network of hundreds or thousands or even tens of thousands of instructors, we could eventually be the biggest faculty in the world. Mm. And yet these courses are just a fraction of the cost of what they cost in college. Mm. And so hopefully eventually in 10 years or 20 years, when your kids are getting ready to go to school, there will be an alternative. And the alternative will be instead of going for a four-year bachelor's degree where about 75% of what you learn is not that useful, and 25% is, will let you buy just the 25% and then spend the other 20, 75% of your time practicing your work, practicing and actually doing things in the real world. And hopefully you'll take that 25% of courses on Maven from the best instructors on the planet. And then the rest of the time, your children will be, you know, spending time in a, you know, in a commune-like environment or a dorm-like environment in some major city, uh, working for, uh, you know, working as apprentices or starting businesses 
or whatever in their college years, as opposed to having such a structured and extremely expensive curriculum uh, designed by a, a centralized university. I really do think you everything you're doing is so timely. Everyone knows we can't keep doing it the old way. Everyone knows that everything you've just said is true, that only about a quarter of the time spent is is really practical. Your new, you know, your your new business, Maven, takes this cohort-based approach that you just talked about. Can you talk about the cohort, the advantages of the cohort-based approach from sort of a learning retention? Uh, standpoint? What what makes it more robust? What makes it more engaging? So in 2009, when we started Udemy, we thought that everyone would want to learn live online, just like they would in a classroom. And so we built this amazing live online learning platform, kind of like an early version of Zoom, Mm -hmm. and released it out there. And in 2009 to 2015 or so, nobody really wanted to use it. People were not ready to go online. And so we invented this idea of a course, which is actually just like a digital textbook. You pay $50, $100, on Udemy, courses can go as low as $10. And you get access to a library of videos that you can watch on your own time and learn on your own time, just like you would if you just bought the textbook for a class. What Maven does is take that a step further and say, it's 2021 now. We are all accustomed to Zoom and Slack and Discord and building relationships over the internet. We have great bandwidth, uh, broadband connection. And so what if instead of just giving you a textbook, we gave you the entire class? You have a group of students who start the class at the same time. They're all focused on the same learning objectives. They learn together via active learning, via peer groups, via project-based learning. There's an instructor who's an expert in the field who takes you through this course over, you know, three days, two weeks, two months, whatever, whatever length the course is that's necessary for the learning outcomes. And you are able to then learn in a group just like you did on a classroom, but it's all delivered over the internet, the comfort of your own home or office. So that's what Maven provides is software that makes that possible in a marketplace that instructors can offer their wares to the public. And We think that this format is going to be the next generation of online learning, but the next decade of online learning will be uh, marked by courses that are more in-depth and cohort-based as opposed to simply buying access to video content online. Yeah, from from a psychological perspective, we know that there's so much value in making behavior stick when you're surrounded with a group of like-minded others. You know, there's fascinating research on things uh, that are really hard to do, like tricky behaviors like weight loss, that shows that if you can do it, you know, with some friends, it's much more powerful than if you try and do it alone. So I have every confidence that that you've thought through this and, and have set something up that, that sets people up to, to win and to, to really make the learning stick. Yeah, it's it's amazing actually. So when we started Udemy, we were we had no idea this would happen, but it turns out that these video-based courses or MOOCs, massively open online courses, their completion rates are somewhere around three to seven percent. So the number of people who buy them, they buy them aspirationally, like buying a nonfiction book. Like I have a couple of Daniel Kahneman's books, and I'll be honest, I haven't opened them yet. And so the point is you can buy a book or buy a course, and only a small percentage of people will finish them. 
And actually, that's a great thing because it allows you to buy knowledge for such a cheap cost. You can buy it for $10. That's amazing. So even if you buy 10 of them and only take one of them, it's still incredible. But cohort-based courses are for more serious learners. And we've seen completion rates end, uh, end up closer to 75 to 90%, depending on the course. So there's a massive increase in the completion rate. And of course, that comes at a cost. Cohort-based courses are usually more expensive, $500 to $2,000 on Maven. And so they're for serious learners who really want to dig in, but the accountability and responsibility that comes from a cohort-based course has serious advantages for the learner. And that's why we think it's going to be such a big um, movement going forward. Well, I, I would be embarrassed to show you my cue on Udemy because there's a lot of artificial intelligence courses and Python courses and other things that I can promise you that I paid for it and never and never saw through. So if the cohort thing's a little more expensive, but if it gets people across the finish line, it's it's very worth it. Now you had an incredible, you're still a very young guy. You've had an incredible amount of success at a young age, but like all of us, you're not batting a thousand. You've also had setbacks in 2013, you co-founded Sprig, a healthy food delivery service. And the concept was that users could order a balanced meal that would be cooked in the industrial kitchen and delivered in like 10 or 15 minutes. You raised a total of $57 million. You had over 1,000 employees, but you shut your doors in, in 2017. What lessons did you take away from the Sprig experience that could be instructive to inspiring entrepreneurs? The most valuable lesson from Sprig is that after shutting it down, my career was better off for having done it and for having shut it down than it was before. And while I feel a little guilty about that, because I feel badly that I lost so much money of my investors' money, we raised you know, almost $60 million and lost most of it. I think we returned eight back. And because a lot of my team members, put their blood, sweat, and tears into this company for four years, and we eventually had nothing to show for it. I feel horrible about that. And yet the lesson for anyone who's starting a company is that if you go ahead and do it, and even if it doesn't work out, you can still, on the other side, benefit from the skills gain that you get from throwing yourself into the fire. And perhaps more importantly, if you are in a company that needs to shut down, you have run out of energy, you have lost faith, or the market is telling you that your company is not the right business for the market. You can shut it down. Grace, as long as you shut it down gracefully, you will be better off afterwards than you were before. And I really believe that. At the same time, if you start a company and you expect that after you shut it down, that everyone's just going to roll out the red carpet, that's not true. Unfortunately, it does take about a year or two in my experience to ramp back up and be better than you were before. So it took me a year or two of, in my, in my view, view, building back my reputation and confidence. Uh, and now today, I think people view me as stronger than I was when I started Sprager was CEO of a company that had raised $60 million at that point. And so I do think it takes a little bit of time to recover from it. but you will be step function better than you were before. When you think about that year, year and a half where you're sort of on the comeback trail, 
Were there any specific things you did either internally or to show the marketplace that, you know, that you were better, you were back, you were better, you're stronger than ever before? Anything specific you'd like to talk about that you did during that sort of time of reflection? I'll take this in two ways. The first way, I'll just tell you uh, my advice. And the second, I'll tell you a story about what I actually did because I did something a little different. So my advice to anyone in that situation is to remember the conversation we had earlier about investors and just think of anyone in the world as someone who is like an investor. They'd rather see traction and action from you than not. Mm. And so if you're someone who has a failed company in your background, it's really hard to explain to people what you did at that company and whether or not you possess skills from that because it's not on a normal track. So what I would recommend is just go and start doing something new. And as you start doing something new, you can show people what skills you've learned and what you're made of. The biggest challenge entrepreneurs have after being CEO or co-founder is they feel like it's such a demotion to go into a company and become just a product manager or an engineer or a designer or a business development exec, uh, business development partner. Don't worry about it. Join the fastest growing company you possibly can and show them how good you are mm-hmm. rather than waiting for them to accept you. Go in and prove it. And that's what I did after my first loss, which was after I got fired from Udemy by my co-founder. But after my second loss, I was in a slightly more privileged situation. And so this comes to my second point, which is my story. After Sprig shut down, I had saved up or earned enough in exits from Udemy that I had enough money to afford to go off on my own and travel. And so while I didn't make any money, in fact, I lost money on Sprig, I had some, some capital in the bank and had the ability to go and travel. And I was lucky enough to do that. You don't need capital to travel. You can work on the road. That's something that people don't do often enough, but I did that after college. Mm -hmm. But this time I could just be completely free. And so I actually took three years off, if you can believe it, three years to just do whatever I wanted. And I traveled the world. One and a half of those years, I was fully international, nomadic. And then another year and a half, I was kind of between international and uh, my home of Austin, Texas. And the benefit of this three years off was life altering. It's a really impactful experience, but it wasn't about trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. So at least the time I was international, I honestly was taking more of like a, just a break and enjoy enjoying life. than I was trying to figure out what was next, but it was a really valuable experience. If anyone gets the opportunity to take a sabbatical like that, I'd highly recommend it. They say that that happiness uh, happiness can't be pursued; it ensues, right? It ensues from living life a certain sort of way. And I think, in some respects, the same could be said of your journey, right? If you had spent the whole three years sort of grinding, trying to figure out what you wanted to do next, you may not have had the growth and and purpose that you came out of that time with. It also occurs to me now, with the with the benefit of twenty twenty hindsight. That Sprig was the confluence of so many things that have been wildly successful in the past 18 months. You know, you've got food delivery, ghost kitchens, all these things that have been so top of mind and so profitable uh, in the last 18 months. How much of entrepreneurial success do you attribute to timing? I mean, if Sprig had started in 2019 or 2020, you may have had a very different path. 
How do you think about timing luck in this whole journey? Timing is a critical factor in success. There's no doubt that for every great startup idea, there have been many people who have tried at the wrong time and then eventually who tried at the right time and succeeded. This is true in social networking, in search, in you know, video conferencing and podcasting, whatever you whatever you you want. At the same time, if I'm going to be honest, I think the biggest reason why Sprig failed wasn't timing. It was two things. One, it was overheated venture capital markets. And two, or or my, I'll take more ownership and say, number one is I raised too much money. Number two is I ran out of energy. Hmm. Those are the two reasons Sprig failed. So I raised too much money. What does that mean? Well, when you raise $60 million, you have to return hundreds of millions of dollars for anyone to be excited about it. And if you raise $60 million, you're going to spend some of it no matter what. And so we started to spend it on things like building out a huge kitchen in San Francisco that costs you know $100,000 a month. And so now all of a sudden, that kitchen, in order to be profitable, had to make $200,000 a month in profit. Right to make the cost of the of the rent two hundred thousand dollars a month in, in net margin, and if it's making two hundred thousand dollars a month in net margin, and you know margins in the food business are you know pretty slim, you're talking about over a million a month in revenue, which was really hard to do as a standalone restaurant. That would be the most successful restaurant in San Francisco, which for a while Sprig was the most successful restaurant in San Francisco, but it didn't last. Yeah. So. That is the, the problem with raising too much capital. You spend it and then you put yourself in a situation where it's very difficult to recover. The second thing, though, is that I ran out of energy. And I think this has a lot to do with my own passion for the space. I wasn't as burning. Uh, I didn't have as much of a burning passion for food as I do for education. I think this also had to do just with uh, you know, not setting myself up for uh, emotional health throughout the company. And it had to do with the fact that, you know, we as a team were not, uh, we tried too hard to save the company. And by trying to save the company, we expended all our energy in saving it and didn't have energy to start a new company. Mm. And so when we shut down Sprig, we had $8 million left. We had plenty of money to go start a new company. And we had all the leverage we needed to go negotiate with our investors and redo the cap table. However, I just wasn't up for it. And so I returned the capital instead. And I think being honest about that's important because what it's done at Maven is it's helped me provide the perspective that I can't just expend all my energy on the next milestone. I have to make sure I have gas in the tank for the next and the next and the next and the next milestone. And so I really play Maven like a marathon and not a sprint. And I think it's allowed me to, when I do have, you know, moments where I'm feeling run down, which happens all the time, the startup founder, um, to take a beat and say, all right, I'm going to take a breath so that I can, I can fight next week. And that's been a very, very valuable lesson for me. Yeah. Valuable, valuable lesson in self-care. Last, last question for you. You know, when I was reading your bio and sort of exploring your history and your wiki page and different things, I sort of noticed something jumped out at me that that you've often had co-founders from from Sprig to Udemy to to the Growth Hackers Conference. 
Is that intentional? Do you find value in that collaboration or do you think differently about it after being fired by your co-founder, as you said, as you said earlier in the show? I love working with other people. Like I just get energy and leverage from working with people who I admire. And when you're early in a company, it's very difficult to hire people who are as high potential as you can co-found with. And so I've taken the approach that you know, I'm happy to be the person in charge. I'm willing to be CEO. I didn't always want to be the number one person and be in charge of the company, but I've always wanted to have co-founders because that's how you get the most talented people early on. And then as you scale, you can start to bring on other people. And of course, people from internally within the company rise to the occasion and become successful. And so the company grows over time and you end up finding lots of people to collaborate but often in the early days, it's extremely high leverage to have partners. So, and also I'll say, honestly, I'm not really that greedy about having, you know, hundred percent ownership in the company or even 20% ownership at the end. Like, I don't really care. I think that the company is better off if it has a long-term minded owner. And so I do care a lot about being CEO for a long time, as opposed to you know, being able to be fired. And so I put protections in place for that, or I try my best to. However, I think that in terms of financial upside, I'm perfectly happy owning a smaller part of a bigger pie than I am. And just having less stress and slightly less, you know, of the work to do than having to do everything and have all the stress on your shoulders and, you know, benefit from all of that success yourself. You know, it, it strikes me that there's a parallel between sort of the old model and the cohort model of online education, right? Like you can do it alone and maybe hang on to more money or you can do it with, with others and maybe spend a little more or lose a little bit more equity, but have a higher likelihood of success and have some sort of social support, some social buttressing there can be a powerful thing. Well, hey, uh, Gagan, you've been absolutely amazing. If people want to learn more about you, they want to follow you on social media, learn more about Maven, where can they go? Well, we're, we're pretty easy. We're very literal here. So our uh, URL for Maven is maven.com. And my Twitter handle, which is where I am most active, is at Gaganbiani. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. No, incredible insights, incredible candor. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom today. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.